Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. And with me today, I have Matthew Kranig. He's the deputy director for strategy in the Scrocoff Center of Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. He's also a tenured associate professor of government and foreign service at Georgetown University. He is a published author, a, a regularly sought out expert. Uh, we have, here at Providence have had him speak at our uh, national security conference last year. He has worked with the CIA, the Defense Department, and has advised campaigns such as the Romney campaign in 2012, the Rubio campaign in 2016. His expertise often drifts towards um, uh, nuclear strategy and uh, international um, relations and foreign policy. And so uh, he is a perfect, I think, guest to have. So Matt, thanks for being on. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to kind of begin, since it's it's pertinent to our, our timeline here of this week, with the State of the Union, uh, which was just given um, Tuesday night. The president laid out in a 86-minute address, you know, a predominantly um, an agenda that was um, dominated by uh, domestic policy. But there was there was a about a third of the speech that he reserved for kind of foreign policy discussions. And and one of the criticisms that uh, Trump often face faces is a kind of a uh, incongruity between what is made, you know, statements that he makes via Twitter and via, um, you know, p- public polit- political rallies and those kinds of um, events and what is actually enacted, you know, um, by his administration and kind of the, the State Department and the foreign policy bureaucracy. And what we saw, I felt like, and I want to get kind of your perspective as an expert who's worked on in a couple different administrations and, and uh, different administrations that have displayed, uh, you know, I think vastly different um, uh, foreign policies and America's posture in the world. I, w- I want to get to your kind of perspective of, of what you thought and um, – you know what we saw in the State of the Union. I felt like was a, a very measured, um, uh, kind of realistic uh, assessment of where the U.S. is right now. That was kind of lacking in some of the bluster that we typically see in a in a, in a political rally. But what was your what was some major takeaways that you may have had, or anything that that struck you as either encouraging or um, uh, troubling from the State of the Union? Well, first, you're right. The State of the Union focused much more on domestic issues, uh, less on foreign and defense policy. Um, But uh, the parts on foreign and defense policy uh, didn't really make any news, no major new announcements, uh, just President Trump kind of reviewing uh, his policy and some of his major foreign policy uh, priorities. Um, And, um, you know, most of those policies, I I think you're right, are pretty um, traditional, despite the fact that Trump has a reputation as a disruptor. A lot of the policies he laid out are what you would expect from a uh, uh, kind of more traditional Republican president. He talked about increasing defense spending, strengthening U.S. Uh, missile defense policy, um, strengthening uh, U.S. Uh, nuclear policy, and in particular withdrawing from the INF Treaty in response to Russian violations. Also discussed withdrawing from the Iran deal. Uh, the one area that was, um, I think, more particular uh, to Trump was his promises to withdraw forces from Syria and Afghanistan. Um, This is an area where many Republican foreign policy experts, myself included, think that we should uh, retain residual forces there to achieve our objectives. Uh, But I didn't win the presidency. This is something the president uh, won on and uh, campaigned on. And um, uh, so that was um, one announcement uh, where I I wasn't fully on board. But uh, for the most part, I thought a pretty um, uh, straightforward list of foreign policy priorities. Right. There were two um, 
statements that, that really stuck out in, in President Trump's uh, presentation that I, I want to kind of get your feedback on. They both relate to just some of what you just said and kind of recounting uh, his speech. The first one was that he said, you know, in, in dealing with the Middle East and really in dealing with international relations in general, the United States is, is taking a stance of principled realism, which I thought was just a, a fascinating kind of turn of phrase because, I mean, realism is something that, you know, Providence as, as a journal is very focused on, right? I mean, it's what we want to articulate, the idea of Christian realism, that there are certain realities that uh, should kind of predominate our thinking when we uh, think on the world and and how we engage with the world and and that there's a tendency within you know liberalism I would say and within pacifism to sometimes idealize you know the the world sphere to idealize uh, human nature and and anthropology to an extent to which um, you know you end up uh, making decisions that aren't really based on the way things that typically play the way that things typically play, play out in history. And so principle realism I thought was was kind of fascinating. Um, one you know before we kind of get to the next phrase with that phrase principle realism, one of the criticisms that I would levy at the Trump administration, I don't know if you agree with it or not and you can feel free to kind of push uh, against it is this is this idea that while on the left and with liberals, you can have a, ten, a tendency to kind of um, withdraw into some kind of idealism that's that not realistic. I think that there's, there's on the right this kind of isolationist tendency, which uh, you see a lot of kind of in the American first um, vein within the, the Trump administration and definitely within his rhetoric when he gets really revved up in a you know, political rally. This idea that, well, if we just – America just needs to you know, back off. We're not the policemen of the world. We can, you know, withdraw from Syria. We can uh, withdraw from the Iran deal. We can pull out of the, you know, um, uh, United Nations uh, Council on Human Rights. We can pull out of the INF Treaty. We can, you know, pull, pull out of the, the um, uh, TPP. Any, you know, all these international um, uh, agreements and, and organizations and, and networks that have very much defined kind of U.S. engagement over the last 70 years. None of these really matter. I mean, we just really need to focus on domestic issues here at home. I, you know, I don't know how realistic that is, you know, in terms of principal realism. I think the, the base bedrock of conservatism is this idea that you don't just withdraw and you don't also just look at the world through rose-colored glasses, but you engage and you engage with a purpose and you engage with principle. So, do you see any kind of um, uh, disjoint there? Do you, do you agree? Do you disagree? That particular phrase, how do you see that playing out in his uh, administration? Yes. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Um, you know, realism is this uh, think uh, kind of uh, way of thinking about international relations that goes uh, back at least 2,000 years. Thucydides, the ancient Greek historian, was arguably the first realist. And, you know, the name comes from the uh, recognition that we should take the world as it really is, not as uh, we wish it to be. And, and that means that there's uh, security threats and evil and uh, that the United States and its allies need to be strong to, to protect themselves. Uh, and um, so I think the Trump uh, administration uh, does have certain uh, realist principles. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what they mean by, by principled realism. Uh, I think H.R. Um, McMaster may have first coined this phrase in helping President Trump to write his national security strategy, uh, but they haven't fully uh, fleshed it out in my view. Uh, but more importantly to your uh, question about American isolationism, I think you're right that there is that trend um, within the um, uh, that line of thinking within the U.S. body politic that goes back, uh, you know, um, really to the nation's founding. It's been uh, one of the themes. 
Uh, but if we realistically look at the world uh, as it's been for the past 70 years, I think what we see is that the United States uh, has been a leading state in the international system. You know, we didn't go about seeking global domination. Rather, at the end of World War II, we had forces in Europe and Asia uh, because we had just defeated uh, fascism and imperialism in those places. Uh, and uh, at first, there was a sense that we should come home, but then um, we decided and our allies decided it would be safer for us to stay, uh, to contain um, communism. And so U.S. Uh, forward presence has been providing peace and stability in Europe and Asia uh, for 70 years. And um, so I think it would be somewhat unrealistic to think that we can pull back from the world and everything is going to be fine. I think it's really been American uh, power and influence that's uh, made the world what it is today. Uh, we've prevented great power war, made the world a much more prosperous place, um, many more countries living with good governance and democracy and human rights today than 70 years ago. And I think a lot of that has to do with American power. So if we pull back from the world, uh, we, we have that choice. But I think it also risks unleashing World War III, global economic depression, and creeping authoritarianism around the world. So I think it would be an unrealistic and, and poor choice. Well, that, yeah, I mean, I would agree. And one of the, this is the second phrase that I want to focus on out of his uh, foreign policy section of his speech that I kind of want to get you to, um, to speak on is this phrase that great nations do not fight endless wars. So kind of just to your point of, of having the last, you know, this August, it will be 74 years since there was a, a major great power conflict, right? And, and uh, to your own statement just a minute ago, a lot of that has been based on the United States's, um, uh, I think, um, commitment to remain engaged in, in theaters where it not only has kind of, you know, vested interests, but even in areas that aren't against, you know, um, um, where there's a great economic interest, but there's um, definitely an interest in kind of maintaining the peace. This idea that great nations do not fight uh, endless wars, I mean, is it fair to characterize, um, you know, our continued presence, whether it be in, in Europe or whether it be in, uh, you know, the Koreas or whether it be in the Middle East as a state of war? You know, is it, uh, is there going, is there a distinction and a, a worthy distinction to be made between the type of conflict that our military presence over the last 70 years in these different areas has prevented and uh, that military presence itself, right? Uh, so just talk on that a little bit. Yeah, so at, at the end of World War II, we defeated Nazi Germany, defeated Imperial Japan, uh, and we've stayed. Our, our forces are still there uh, from that time, and I think um, those countries are, are much better off because of that presence. The regions are better off, uh, and the United States is better off. You know, we often say we, after 9-11 that we go uh, overseas to fight terrorism because we'd rather fight it there than fight it here. And I think similar with our forward presence in other regions as well, by defending against Russia and China in Europe and Asia, um, we defend forward. We don't have to worry about them um, coming into our own region and, and threatening us closer to home. So I think um, uh, the one place where um, that's maybe more controversial and where Trump is taking action is um, Afghanistan and Syria. Uh, should we still be in those countries or not? So just like after World War II, the reason we're there is because there was a direct threat to the United States. You know, we're in Afghanistan because of 9-11. We're in Syria because uh, of ISIS there beheading uh, Americans and, and beheading journalists. So we went to war to defeat them. Uh, and our forces are still there, and they still have a, a role to play, in my view. Um, uh, they, uh, I think the real problem has been that the um, national security experts like me, 
uh, more importantly, public officials, haven't made the case to the American people about why we're still there, uh, what's the purpose. Uh, and so it makes sense that the American people are skeptical of these long-running wars, that uh, President Trump uh, gets a lot of support when he talks about withdrawing. Um, but I think, they're, I think it's the wrong move. I think we should keep those forces there. Uh, and that it would advance American uh, interest in the long run. I mean, do you think there's an argument to be made that the American people are spoiled, right? I mean, that the the fact that um, I think one of the reasons why um, U.S. engagement and U.S. military engagement and the world was always, you know, better tolerated and accepted by the, Amer- the American people the last 70 years is that – Many of the people in the decision-making process and many of the people who were actually voters in the you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s, even 90s, had a living memory of what great global conflict was like. And they, you, know, you had veterans that were serving in Congress of, of World War II and Vietnam. You had uh, uh, you know, people who had an active memory of what it was like and what the world was like when some of these kind of international globalist, if you will. I don't know if that's a bad word, right? You know, if, you know, uh, liberals, conservatives, close your ears. I said, you know, uh, globalists. Uh, but these, these sort of, uh, these, these trends before these trends were in place, before this, this kind of superstructure was, was in place of what the world was like and what that, uh, what conflict could do and, and the damage that it could do and the, the lives that it could cost. And so there's very little perspective. There's very little of anything to compare it to. I mean, living memory of, of your average voter now, they don't have anything. Uh, th- this is just the way that the world is. We're, you know, largely at peace apart from, you know, occasional regional conflicts. Um, so, I mean, do you think that they're – in terms of making the case for continued U.S. engagement in the world, I mean, how – kind of how do you go about proving the negative, right? I mean, at some point they're just going to say this is just the way the world is. World War III, I mean, what would that even be? You know, um, so – we're not going to have a Hitler rise again, or we're not going to have you know Germany invade France again, or anything like that. So, what is um, how do you make the case? I mean, how do you kind of uh, reach into that black void and kind of try and prove a negative? We've really lost our sense of tragedy. I think mm-hmm. you know you're right. Um, there uh, was a generation where we realized how bad things could get: World War One, Great Depression, World War Two. Uh, But things have been pretty good for the past 70 years, and so the question is, why is that the case? And I think some people think it's just that humanity has become more enlightened. You know, we would learned our lesson, um, and uh, it's progress, technology is making the world a better place. I think it's uh, what's happened over the past 70 years is uh, American power, overwhelming uh, American power. You know, our alliances in Europe and Asia kept the peace, deterred Russia and China, uh, we've advocated for uh, free trade, a more uh, open financial system. Uh, we ourselves have been the major generator of new technology since the time of Thomas Edison, uh, so it's made the world a much more prosperous place. And we've advocated for freedom and human rights around the world, sometimes by example, sometimes by uh, other means. And it's made the world a better place. And uh, my fear is that if America um, declines, um, either in just its material power or if we withdraw from the world, uh, what we'll get is a return to the pre-1945 world. And I think we may already be seeing signs of that. Uh, China is rising. The United States is less powerful relative to China than it used to be. Uh, And we're seeing a return of great power competition. China is taking territory through military coercion in Asia in the South China Sea. Russia has invaded two of its neighbors, Georgia and Ukraine. 
Uh, democracy is now on the retreat around the world. In the past eight years, the number of democracies around the world has um, decreased. And I think these are all a, a direct result of the relative decline uh, of American power. Uh, so if we want to reverse these trends, I think it's important for the United States to shore up its strengths and also to to remain engaged. Yeah, it would that Americans would read history, right? Uh, it's the, always the, the um, uh, crux of the human condition is that our memories are rather short and, and history has a way of having to remind us of, of certain truths. And I think um, – I think this may be one of those times, unfortunately, and, and hopefully it's uh, not as violent a reminder as, as what we've had in the past. I mean, it seems like that uh, Americans take um, American predominance and power for granted. Um, and I wonder sometimes, and I don't know, you know, kind of what you think if uh, if President Trump takes that same power for granted. I mean, part of what has made, uh, you know, America, the the predominant power in the world, is that engagement and is that um, the constant maintenance of the kind of international machinery. And it didn't just happen, right? It didn't just, you know, um, that 70 years of relative peace uh, didn't just sort of occur by accident. I mean, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of planning. It took a lot of diplomacy. It took a lot of, you know, threats at times and and a military buildup and the military action, but it, it didn't... Um, it didn't just occur by accident. And sometimes I, when I listen to President Trump speak and he speaks of basically, you know, kind of inhaling in and withdrawing uh, our, from our, from the world. But, you know, if if needed, if things get bad enough, we can always jump back in. You know, we'll, we'll pull out of Syria. We'll go to Iraq. If it gets bad enough in Syria, we'll, we'll go back in. Um, you know, we'll withdraw kind of from, you know, different trees. But, you know, let Russia know if they really mess up, we'll, we'll jump back in. And... Um, the problem is, is that sometimes when these powers, whether it be ISIS, whether it be China, whether it be Russia, when they, when they cross the line, you know, they don't just stop at a threat and they don't just stop uh, on a dime. And sometimes they roll over, uh, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of people in there uh, as they kind of um, uh, project out. Uh, so, um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting time to watch. I want to talk a little bit about uh, North Korea um, and Russia specifically. Uh, let's start with Russia first. So uh, February 1st, uh, Secretary of State Mike uh, Pompeo announced that the United States is going to withdraw from the INF Treaty, which is the uh, Intermediate Range uh, Nuclear Forces Treaty that was signed back in uh, uh, 1987, I believe, uh, between uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, this has been met with both, you know, equal parts uh, cheers from even the, the head of NATO uh, and uh, cheers from uh, many people within the international community. Uh, you've written on this kind of specifically, but it's also been met with, you know, some criticism um, that has said, you know, again, here's a, another example of the United States uh, kind of withdrawing from an international agreement, withdrawing from the international community. Um, try and uh, for our listeners, as we kind of seek to equip our listeners, try to um, bring some nuance into this. Uh, I think that you've made some some good arguments uh, in print in terms of, of why this isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. Uh, so flesh this out for us a little bit. Sure. Uh, well, first, the broader point, because we've talked a little bit about the Trump administration withdrawing from international agreements. Um, but I do think there's a big difference between uh, the Iran nuclear deal and the INF nuclear treaty, uh, which in, in my view were um, flawed agreements and that there is good reason to withdraw. 
and then other types of isolationism, draw, withdrawing from Afghanistan, Syria, criticizing longstanding allies, uh, which, which I think make, uh, make less sense. So you're right that many have kind of portrayed them as all of uh, kind of one uh, uh, orientation toward the world, but I, I see them as different. So on INF in particular, uh, you're right, this was a treaty signed in 1987. Many people see it as the most successful arms control agreement ever uh, because it didn't just reduce numbers of weapons, it eliminated an, an entire class of weapons. So all ground-launched intermediate-range missiles possessed by the United States and Russia were destroyed. So during the Cold War, we had hundreds of these things pointed at each other in Europe. In 1987, we got rid of them all. Uh, so it was great for the security of our allies in Europe, uh, and the United States would have liked to have seen it continue. Uh, the problem is, uh, 10 years or so ago, uh, Russia uh, decided this treaty wasn't in its interest anymore, uh, in part because it was only a treaty between the United States and Russia. It didn't um, address China. Uh, so China has been building up missiles in this category uh, that pose a direct threat to its uh, neighbor Russia, but also to U.S. allies and bases in Asia. So Russia came to the United States in 2005 or so and said, we want to get out of this treaty. Uh, we said, no, we think it's a good treaty. Uh, Russia had the white right to withdraw, but instead of doing that, it just began cheating. So it's been cheating on the treaty, building these missiles. According to uh, the intelligence community, Russia has now deployed four battalions of these missiles. Um, so they're threatening U.S. allies, threatening uh, U.S. bases in Europe uh, as we sit here uh, right now. And so it doesn't make sense for the United States to continue to be constrained by a treaty uh, that's not constraining uh, our only other negotiating partner, Russia. Uh, and moreover, these capabilities would be helpful for countering Chinese power in Asia. So for both of those reasons, I, I think this was uh, the right move to withdraw and uh, look at building these capabilities ourselves. Do you see um, where is what is the next step? You know, so that's I think a lot of times people are saying, all right, fine. You know, they can concede the argument that there there's merit in you know why being why why be shackled, you know, uh, with one side of this why. Uh, why subject ourselves to limits that uh, other partners? What good is a treaty if you know all parties of the treaty aren't going to um, uh, abide by it? And th there's a realist argument, I think, to be to be made there. But there's also a a principle. If you want to go to talk about principle realism, that you know there's a principle in uh, trying to uh, discourage uh, the type of arms race, the type of um, escalation of um, uh, nuclear threat uh, that we saw kind of during the Cold War. You might have a different opinion kind of based on your book, but what is the uh, uh, what's the next step then? Is it just uh, a return to uh, deploying uh, intermediate miss missiles on the part of the U.S. and Russia, both, you know, uh, threatening to uh, um, uh, launch over, you know, Poland and Ukraine? I mean, what's what's the next step? Yeah, well, a few points there. Um, one, many people have um, referred to this as, as a new arms race. Uh, but if that's the case, I, I think uh, Russia is already off and running. They've done a couple of laps and we're in the bleachers playing with our shoelaces. So, um, you know, they've been building these missiles, deploying them, uh, and we've just pulled out of the treaty. So um, I don't see it as an arms race. They're threatening us and our allies today and, and we need to take steps uh, to protect ourselves. Uh, second point is, I think, in terms of principles, if um, you believe in arms control, uh, and then it needs to mean something. And so if an enemy's cheating, 
uh, then there need to be real costs to that. You need to show that you'll be willing to respond uh, to make future arms control credible with that partner and with others. Uh, but in terms of where we go next, um, Congress has already allocated funding in last year's defense budget for the Defense Department to do research and development on intermediate range missiles. Uh, so we could develop a new missile from scratch. Um, I should point out that uh, this treaty banned uh, the missiles. So they could be conventional, they could be nuclear. So I don't think there's any interest in the United States uh, right now in building intermediate range nuclear missiles. Uh, but I, there is interest in building intermediate range conventional missiles, uh, mostly uh, because of Asia. Um, so China has 2,000 or so missiles that are, are in this intermediate range. Um, the only missiles we have in this range are air and sea launched missiles on our ships and on our planes. Uh, and so we're really outgunned right now uh, in Asia. You know, China can dig a hole in the ground, stick a missile in it. Uh, we've got to build an F-35 uh, to respond uh, or a warship to respond. So we're on the losing side of that cost equation. If we could de develop ground-launched missiles that we could deploy in Japan, uh, Australia, at our military base in Guam, uh, it would be a cheap way to counter Chinese firepower. Uh, in the region. So I think that'll be um, the next step, looking at developing some of these conventional intermediate range missiles uh, to be deployed in Asia. And so we'll have to talk to Asian allies about uh, deployments, but um, I, I expect that's uh, where this is headed. What do you th see as the probability of that sort of deployment and that sort of escalation of uh, defensive posture of even being possible, given kind of some of the realities that we've already talked about in terms of, uh, you know, the 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 prevailing mood within the, the president's party, certainly, I guess, the, the Republican Party or the part of the Republican Party that Trump represents, uh, whatever that may be called, uh, is is of this sort of like withdrawing isolationist, you know, why, you know, why would we, uh, you know, increase a military presence, whether it's just by putting missiles on the ground in, uh, in Asia or across, you know, with our uh, allies. I mean, what do you – it seems as if you're advocating uh, the next steps be um, a, an increased level of involvement uh, internationally. And it seems like there is there's less and less of that. And ironically, we've ended up in a state where during the Obama administration, there was, you know, that kind of argument from the left. And, and one of the reasons I think, you know, Obama prevailed was his promise to withdraw from Iraq his, and, and, you know, Guantanamo and leave the leave – the kind of all of the legacy of the Bush administration and the, our, the international engagement there um, uh, in the dust, he was kind of uh, incapable of doing that, I think, by, you know, um, because he was shackled by reality. Um, and to what extent he was successful, it, it resulted in the rise of ISIS. It resulted, I think, in the, you know, destabilization and, and uh, increase of the violence in Syria. So is there, you know, Obama's argument was, well, there's just no appetite within the American public for the, the level of engagement that we've had in the past. Trump, you know, springboards off of that and says, not only is there no appetite for it, you know, we were wrong to do it in the past and, and you know, we should just kind of pull back. But it seems as if you're, you're saying what should happen next and, you know, what we should do next is, is something that's going to be very hard to sell to the American people. So what is the likelihood of this type of posture uh, actually being implemented. I totally agree with you that it should, uh, but what is the, you know, what's the likelihood that you see this actually uh, occurring? Well, first on um, what the American public has an appetite for, 
Uh, I mean, my view is that I, I think most Americans don't have um, strong uh, preferences on specific policy uh, actions that they, for the most part, follow um, the, the cue from leadership. You know, I, I don't have strong views on plumbing or neurosurgery or, um, you know, automobile repair because um, I, I just don't uh, have the expertise and, and it wouldn't be in my interest to develop the expertise in those things. So when I have a problem, I, I go to the experts. And I think uh, most Americans are, are the same way in foreign policy. You know, they have interest, maybe some broad preferences, but th they don't get into the details themselves and, and they have no reason to. So they follow uh, leadership cues. So I think the uh, uh, elites in Washington, politicians in Washington need to do a better job of explaining uh, to the American people, policies in places like Afghanistan and in Europe and Asia and why uh, U.S. engagement uh, is important. Uh, I think we've failed there. And then second point, uh, when I look at the Trump administration's policy, I, I see a difference region by region. It seems like much of the sentiment uh, toward withdrawal, much of the skepticism about American involvement, um, this was true in Obama too, I think, is really directed toward the Middle East. Um, if you actually look at Trump's policies in, in Europe, he's actually increased defense spending on NATO, has increased our deployments there. Uh, in Asia, he recently said he has, hasn't thought about um, changing the alliance relationship with South Korea. Um, and there are even um, many defense experts who say in this new era, Russia and China need to be the, uh, the priority. Uh, Europe and Asia need to be the priority. And so maybe we should be less involved in the Middle East so we can focus more on on Europe and Asia. Uh, and so I guess I am maybe more optimistic than you are that we'll have continued and, and probably even deepening involvement in Asia in the future because the China the China threat is is real. So let's talk about, you know, China vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, because I think the two are always uh, somewhat related. President Trump has announced that he will – his intention to meet with um, – uh, Kim in um, uh, Vietnam uh, later this month. The previous summit, while it was, uh, you know, paradigm breaking and history making and was, you know, lauded greatly by uh, the Trump administration uh, for, you know, um, being a, a unique and um, truly a groundbreaking kind of event uh, did not produce unique or groundbreaking results. Uh, so what, uh, you know, expectation do you have that uh, the the next administration uh, the next uh, meeting rather will um, be uh, a success in producing any kind of results whenever I think about national security strategy or policy I, I like to begin with our goals what is it we're trying to achieve and then work back from there so it's novel that's a novel <laughs> way of doing it <laughs> yes um, I mean you know it's a logical way and it sounds right. uh, obvious when you put it that way but I do right. think many people start jumping into what is the next step without thinking of where do we want to go eventually and so with North Korea the goal uh, has been clear for some time it's the denuclearization of North Korea it's that they eliminate their nuclear weapon and missile program uh, and so you know just theoretically why would Kim jong-un give up his nuclear weapons? Uh, my view is that we have to convince him that giving up his nuclear weapons uh, is actually better for him than keeping him, uh, keeping them. And so uh, the Trump administration early on had this maximum pressure and engagement strategy. And the strategy was to increase the economic, military, political pressure on North Korea, tough economic sanctions, threats of fire and fury. Uh, you may remember this to try to convince Kim Jong-un that staying on this path, building nuclear and missile capabilities was not in his interest. 
And I think this strategy worked. I think Kim Jong-un was really spooked, and it's one of the things that uh, convinced him to come to the table. Um, but then I'm afraid we, we let up the pressure too soon, uh, and we've let um, Kim Jong-un off the hook. He hasn't made any meaningful steps towards nuclear uh, uh, denuclearization, uh, yet we're continuing this engagement. So I think it was worth a, a shot to, to have the conversation. You know, it's the next one is already scheduled, so let's have the conversation. But if there's not clear, concrete plans for how they're going to denuclearize uh, after this meeting, then I, I really think that we need to pull the plug on the engagement uh, path and pivot back to the, to the pressure path, uh, because I think that's the one thing we've seen that's, uh, that's uh, produced some results in, in recent years. Where do you see the U.S. engagement with North Korea in, in terms of kind of its, its broader policy, you know, to get back to the major goals or what is our kind of end goal, the, the broader policy towards Asia, Asia and towards China? I mean, China is heavily invested in North Korea, North Korea and China, you know, China is North Korea's uh, really only uh, trading partner and uh, relies on uh, China a great deal. What is the – where do you see the, the piece of North Korea fitting in the chess game of the relationship between the United States and China? Good question. Um, you know, first thing that I'll say is China plays an important role in the chess game with North Korea. North Korea is very dependent on imports from China. Um, if we could convince China to play hardball with North Korea to cut off uh, that trade, North Korea would be in a very difficult spot. Uh, the problem is this hasn't been a priority for China. Um, you know, China is more worried about destabilizing North Korea. Uh, they don't want the country to collapse. Um, and so for that reason, they've been unwilling to put really tough sanctions on North Korea. So if we pivot back to the pressure track, uh, that's going to be an important piece of it is uh, convincing China to join us in getting tougher with North Korea. And I do think we have uh, some ways of, of trying to do that. How North Korea fits in, in the chess game with China uh, is an interesting question because um, they are formal treaty allies, uh, so many people see them as uh, kind of an enemy in, in this uh, game. On the other hand, North Korea doesn't want to become a, a puppet state of China. And so I think there um, may be um, some opportunities, you know, if we are at some point able to get a deal on denuclearization, where we could try to um, uh, peel North Korea off from China and make it more of an independent actor uh, in the region. And I think if China's um, worried about North Korea, uh, in addition to us, that, that would be one thing that would help us in this, in this competition with China. We're talking with Matthew Krennic, who's the Deputy Director for Strategy in the Scrowcroft Center of Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Uh, when we return, uh, we're going to talk about your book that was published last year and uh, talk a little bit about America's uh, nuclear strategic posture uh, going forward in the future. Back to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. Our guest today is Matthew Kranig, who's the deputy director for strategy in the Scrowcroft Center. I don't know why that's such a hard thing for me to say. Uh, Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Uh, he's also a tenured associate professor at uh, Georgetown University. And we've had a wide-ranging discussion on uh, President Trump and American foreign policy and uh, North Korea and Russia 
and I want to talk to uh, about your book that was released last year in 2018, The Logic of American Nuclear Strategy, that was published by Oxford University Press. We actually reviewed it uh, in the last uh, issue of Providence. Uh, Rebecca Heinrichs uh, reviewed it for us. And one of the things that interests me about the book, and I was, I was giving a talk at uh, Pepperdine University a week ago, and I was talking to a group of younger kind of students the kind of students you probably see all the time at Georgetown who are, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. They have no living memory of the Cold War. And, you know, the the I carry with me this, this kind of sentiment that views nuclear weapons maybe as a, a necessary evil, but probably more of an evil than necessary. You know, I have this, I don't know, maybe some kind of liberal strain in me that remembers the freeze movement, that remembers, you know, kind of arguments against just how horrendous nuclear weapons are and just basically uh, bemoaning the fact that they were ever created and they exist. And yet you make this, I think, kind of fascinating argument in your book that I want you to kind of flesh out a little bit for our readers and, and sell it, you know, a little bit. Um, just this idea that really, you know, one of the reasons why we've had a sustained period of um, relative peace and, and have been absent from any major, you know, conflict, uh, war conflict over the last 70 years is because of, of like nuclear deterrence and because of the presence of nuclear weapons. They're, they're actually, their presence and the, the threat of them has kind of been a, um, a force for peace and, and, and diplomacy over the last 70 years. So talk a little bit about that, that thesis and, and your argument there, and, um, you know, win me over a little bit, I guess. Sure. Well, first, if you, we want to get rid of nuclear weapons, I don't think uh, American leaders are the problem. I think President Obama, President Reagan would have been happy to eliminate nuclear weapons. Uh, the problem is our enemies, uh, Russia, China, North Korea, uh, are building uh, their nuclear arsenals, relying more, not less, on nuclear weapons in their strategy. Uh, and so if you could convince Putin and Kim Jong-un and Xi to get rid of nuclear weapons, maybe we could discuss it, but uh, it doesn't seem likely. Uh, so given that our enemies possess nuclear weapons and are threatening us and our allies, uh, what should we do about it? And as I argue in the book, I think the answer is that the United States needs to possess a, a robust nuclear arsenal. Uh, and indeed, I, I think you can make the case that American nuclear weapons may be one of the greatest forces for good in the world over the past 70 years or so. Um, one thing that's special about American nuclear weapons is that we don't use them just to deter attacks on ourselves. Uh, we use them essentially to protect the entire free world. Over 30 formal treaty allies in Europe and Asia depend on American nuclear weapons uh, for their security. Uh, so I think uh, U.S. nuclear weapons over the past uh, 70 years have deterred great power war, uh, have made Russia, China, North Korea, others reluctant to threaten us or our allies. Um, and they've also um, prevented our allies from building their own nuclear weapons. That's part of the reason we extend deterrence, uh, that if we didn't promise to protect South Korea, Germany, Poland, uh, they might build their own nuclear weapons, and we'd be much worse off in a world where uh, everyone possessed uh, nuclear weapons. So I think for those reasons, deterring great power war, assuring our allies, preventing the spread of nuclear weapons, uh, a robust nuclear, uh, American nuclear force is really necessary in the world as long as nuclear weapons continue to exist. What is your position on, you know, continued efforts for anti-proliferation and, you know, there's there that very conversation, even that word is kind of probably foreign. It's certainly not kind of in the common lexicon anymore. It's not something that's greatly discussed. Um, since we've, you know, left the kind of binary world of the Cold War and the idea of mutually assured destruction, like all of those kind of phrases aren't really in the in the common lexicon. Uh, and so there's there's been, I think, a, a 
diminution, I guess, or a, a reduction of any kind of talk about anti-proliferation. And yet, I would I would think, even though I would totally agree uh, with your premise that the the United States um, its use of its nuclear arsenal has been for the greater benefit of the world and and the perpetuation of peace over the last seventy years. That seeing you know more and more countries uh, gain the potential for nuclear weapons, and not only countries, not only nations and sovereign states, um, but, you know, with some of these sovereign states that aren't exactly that stable, uh, you know, the fear and the the great fear is that these weapons or some uh, materials, nuclear materials that that can be uh, implemented against uh, the American people or against our interests uh, could be um, uh, obtained by rogue actors, you know, terrorists and that kind of thing. So what is, you know, what is your um, argument, I guess, and, and what is your uh, hope and vision for either efforts towards anti-proliferation or, you know, ensuring that uh, America doesn't become victim of, um, you know, a rogue terrorist attack? Yes. Well, nuclear non-proliferation is uh, still important and should be an important part of U.S. strategy. Uh, it reminds me, I was watching the John Stewart show a few years ago when he still had his show. And uh, John Bolton was on before he was national security advisor, of course, and and this issue came up. And John Bolton said to John Stewart, uh, you know, you and I uh, aren't too far off on this issue. And John Stewart was surprised because he thought of himself as very different from Bolton. Uh, and uh, Bolton said, yeah, not, not very far off. You would prefer that zero countries have nuclear weapons, and I would prefer that one country one. has nuclear yeah, right, weapons. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm a little bit in Bolton's camp there. I, I don't right. think that nuclear weapons in general uh, are good. I think uh, the nuclear weapons in the United States uh, are good for what we've done for deterring adversaries and assuring our allies. Uh, but we do have an interest in making sure other countries don't build nuclear weapons. You know, we want to reverse North Korea's program, stop Iran from building nuclear weapons, uh, in part because we're worried that if they build nuclear weapons, other countries in the region uh, might build nuclear weapons. You know, it might not stop with Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt might all decide to build nuclear weapons if Iran got nuclear weapons. Uh, And so part of the reason the United States extends deterrence, provides nuclear security guarantees to other countries is because uh, we don't want them to build nuclear weapons. So, you know, Japan and South Korea uh, if it has, if it weren't for our nuclear weapons, they would probably build nuclear weapons in response to North Korea's nuclear weapons. Um, so um, here, I guess you and I are like Bolton and um, uh, Stewart. I think we agree that um, other countries building nuclear weapons is not in American interest or in the interest of global security. Well, what unites us is far greater than what divides <laughs> us, Matthew. So thank you for that. Um, now, one quick thing, and kind of as we close, what what fascinates me kind of about your argument in your book and what I find kind of compelling about it is this idea that, you know, uh, Providence exists to equip the American mind to kind of engage the real world and to help Christians and non-Christians like and practitioners kind of understand that uh, we live in a nuanced world and it's it's not full of a lot of binary decisions that a lot of times there's real intricacy there that, that needs to be appreciated. And the idea among a lot of Christians is that, yeah, nuclear weapons would be a moral evil or their implementation or proliferation is, is a moral evil. And yet, you know, your argument kind of turns that on its head and says, no, that, you know, the fact that we can we can employ these for good and actually do a greater good is kind of the whole you know argument that providence is is you know quick to make that um, you know all power is not 
evil, right? And not all hard power is not evil, and military power implemented is not evil. Even war itself is not like some kind of inherent evil, as is kind of the uh, uh, trope. If that war is being prosecuted to a just end and to ensure liberty, if even nuclear weapons are being employed uh, as a deterrent to uh, foster, you know, liberty, they can be turned into kind of a moral good. Is there anything that, you know, you can add to that to kind of encourage um, uh, Christians kind of in their view of, of uh, uh, America's foreign policy in regards to nuclear weapons? Well, I'm glad you raised it because there is one other important point. Uh, you know, just war doctrine has always uh, had the principles of distinction and proportionality uh, in, in warfare. It's also been enshrined in the law of armed conflict uh, that uh, in a war, uh, it's not just to uh, intentionally slaughter innocent civilians. Rather, you need to distinguish between legitimate military targets and innocent civilians. And um, many countries in their nuclear strategies do not do that. China, we think with its nuclear strategy, would just plan to slaughter as many Americans as possible. And I think that's many people's view of nuclear deterrence, that we just threaten to slaughter a bunch of people in Beijing and Moscow to, to deter them. Uh, but that's actually not um, U.S. nuclear targeting policy. Uh, for decades, the United States has complied with the law of armed conflict with its nuclear strategy. Uh, so we only plan to uh, target legitimate military targets, uh, you know, Russian missile silos, air bases, naval bases. Now, of course, if you're using nuclear weapons, there's going to be collateral damage, so I don't want to uh, downplay that. But I think there is a, a moral distinction between uh, following the laws and principles of armed conflict, only targeting legitimate military targets, which is what the United States does, a uh, difference between that and purposely trying to kill a lot of people, uh, which is what some of our enemies like China do. Well, we're grateful uh, that um, Providence has, and I mean Providence in the technical term, um, has allowed the United States to... Uh, uh, rise to this position, I pray that uh, we continue to stay kind of engaged in the world and um, in a way that, that fosters peace. Uh, Matthew Kranig has been our guest uh, this week. Uh, he is a uh, tenured associate professor at Georgetown University and uh, the author of The Logic of American Nuclear Strategy from Oxford University Press. Matthew, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Look forward to coming back.